Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning, 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific, and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The San Francisco International Film Festival closes tonight, its 60th anniversary of this of the festival. The uh, the closing night film is The Green Fog, a San Francisco Fantasia. It is a film put together by directors Guy Madden and his co-directors Evan Johnson and Galen Johnson. And this is a film that is a homage, a remake of the Hitchcock classic Vertigo using using no footage from the Hitchcock classic and instead piecing together a film from a variety of sources, including studio classics, 50s noir, experimental films, 70s primetime TV, putting that together in a way that is a homage to the city as well as the broad outlines of a remake of the film Vertigo. The director of that film, The Green Fog of San Francisco Fantasia, is Guy Madden. Guy is known for such films as Brand Upon the Brain, Heart of the World, My Winnipeg, and many, many others. We're honored to have him with us today here on Film School. Guy Madden, welcome. Hey, thanks so much, Mike. It's great to be back. It's such a long time away, and uh, I'm happy to talk about this thing. It's really hard to explain what it is, but once, if you just got a chance to sit down and watch it, it would make itself pretty apparent in a, in a hurry, I hope. Yeah. I've thought that about many of my other films in the past, only to be proven woefully wrong. Well, the the idea did not start out as a remake of Vertigo. You were approached, approached by the uh, San Francisco International Film uh, Festival to put together kind of a tribute to San Francisco. Is that right? I guess so. I can't remember the exact wording, but I know Noah Cowan from back from his days uh, at TIFF. Mm-hmm. He was one of the directors there for quite a while. And he uh, commissioned me to do some installations back in 2010. Before that, he was a distributor with Cowboy Films, and he distributed one of my shorts. So I've known him a long time. He just wrote me a quick, glib. It's the way he is. He's quick and glib, hilarious, warm, unconventional mm-hmm. for you know such a prestigious kind of job of diplomacy, directing a film festival. Mm-hmm. He just said, hey, how'd you like to um, make a... Um, kind of a city symphony of San Francisco using footage of all the, the hundreds of movies shot in San Francisco. And sure, and, you know, I quickly went to IMDb and looked up, um, uh, you know, just with a key search word San Francisco and found out there are, in fact, hundreds of Hollywood movies dating back to before Eric von Stroheim's Greed mm-hmm. in the early 20s, um, and including even um, uh, uh, Lumiere Brothers footage of uh, of the city just before the earthquake in 1906 and just after. Okay. And um, there's and then of course there's most famously my favorite movie Vertigo was made there. But um, and then all sorts of other movies that somehow foreshadowed Vertigo and and others that are just addled with uh, homages to Vertigo and uh, you know uh, uh, Basic Instinct and you know. Jagged Edge and um, you know Bullet, Sister Act. I'm not saying Sister Act's an homage to Vertigo, but there is a nun at the end of Vertigo that bursts out and scares Kim Novak out of a bell tower. Oh, and um, uh, I don't know. It's um, I didn't really 
and so I asked my collaborators. I've been working under the uh, aegis uh, of Development Limited. It's a Winnipeg-based filmmaking collective, which is basically just me and Evan Johnson and his brother Galen Johnson. We each wear many hats. Mm-hmm. And I just asked the boys if they were up for this. I was kind of busy at Harvard teaching yes. filmmaking mm-hmm. uh, for this semester, but Harvard has almost a seven-week Christmas break. So we went back, and we, um, they said yes. And I told Noah yes, and we just started watching as many of these San Francisco-based movies as possible, yeah. um, all in fast-forward, but just a slight fast-forward, just like at 120%, and we just watched these things all day who were kind of crazy. We didn't know exactly what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. We thought maybe organize it along the principles of Ziga Vertov, City Symphony, Man of the Movie Camera, mm-hmm. or maybe Walt, Walter Ruttmann's Berlin Symphony of a Great City, or uh, Apropos de Nice by Jean Vigo, uh, or even my own My Winnipeg. Yeah. But um, what happened as we, started, as we started watching these things from every decade of cinema history, we noticed that there were things common to vertigo in it, you know, just driving, even if by horse and buggy, um, people dangling off of <laughs> troughing, uh, people falling. It's a steep city, right? Yeah. Um, bridges, uh, kind of a haunted city, uh, lots of male gaze, although that could be said about almost yeah. every Hollywood movie made uh, by a man um, since... Thomas Edison uh, stole the credit from uh, Dickinson for make, inventing a camera, um, the male gaze. So, and it, it occurred to us that uh, all these that why not organize the footage along the lines of a remake of Vertigo, and then we just just in the spirit of glibness just said, well, why don't we just remake Vertigo, but not allow ourselves any shots from Vertigo, because. Vertigo being my favorite film, when we were logging the the footage, I found myself not wanting to use any footage from it because I just, I loved it so much. It felt like cheating using Vertigo. So it just, this was a way around it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we allowed ourselves one shot from Vertigo, the very first shot, the shot that's just the rung of a ladder that eventually is gripped by a man Mm -hmm. on the run. And... um, and then we took off, but in, a, in the same direction, but using different shots that we found from other movies. And, uh, and our version is about half the length of the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's, um, it's protagonist, the Jimmy Stewart character, yeah. just keeps uh, shedding and donning new masks. Sometimes he looks like Carl Malden. Sometimes he looks like Tony Franciosa. <laughs> sometimes, you know, sometimes he looks like Chuck Norris. Sometimes he looks like Steve McQueen or Michael Douglas. Um, Barbara Belgetti's is played by many different women, including Phyllis Diller. Okay. And, um, you know, Kim Novak is played by uh, Gina Lala Brigida and, um, you know, um, Zsa Gabor and, uh, and then countless other women, you know, it's, um, and so their faces keep changing, but their forward movement through the rough outline of Vertigo, uh, our most important collaborator was a fair usage lawyer who made sure we were never guilty of plagiarizing the story, Mm -hmm. uh, nor using too much from any one source of repurposed footage. And uh, so uh, it was interesting working with, I love working with Galen and Evan, and and then this fantastic fair usage lawyer is good too. I, I think we're ready to just 
keep making movie uh, tributes to cities. Uh, we can churn them out like sausages now. <laughs> well, uh, well, Miami's next up. Um, I, you know, just just taking um, uh, De Palma's Scarface and Miami Vice. Yeah, you could really, you know, as as you're sort of anchoring, um, you know, as your the foundation, you could build up a really great Miami. Film. Well, first of all, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Guy Madden. He's the co-director of a film that is uh, the closing night film at the San Francisco International Film Festival. It's called The Green Fog, A San Francisco Fantasia. You said Vertigo's your favorite film. What is it about Vertigo? What is it the thing you know, that I, draws you to it so, so, so much? I thought I knew. Um, I first watched it almost 30 years ago fell asleep the first time I saw it, as a matter of fact. If you read IMDb uh, user reviews of it, um, I'm not the only one to fall asleep during it. Uh, there's a hilarious review that I just encountered yesterday about how boring it was. And gave it one out of ten stars. Well, an it, old man just driving around. Yeah, well, when it came and, out, wasn't it widely considered a, a, a bad Hitchcock film? Wasn't it sort of at the Yeah, it, probably. It's, yeah. it's You know, it is slow, uh, but... It, someone made an audio recording of it off late night Winnipeg television. It had played as a late movie, complete with commercials. And so I got to know it in the editing room while I was making my own films at the beginning of my career. And I just listened to the score and the long silent stretches where there's no dialogue. And then the dialogue. So I memorized the dialogue. I memorized the sound effects. I memorized the commercials for McDonald's shoes and... Um, uh, you know, a local rug store and things like that. I memorized them all in this uh, uh, pair of audio cassettes I listened to over and over again. And it finally started to make musical sense for me. And um, not to get all Walter Pater on you, but he said something like, all art is constantly aspiring to the condition of music. And that movie seemed to make musical mm -hmm. sense to me first, and then when I finally saw it again, just on VHS with all of its bleeding, uh, oversaturated colors, yeah. where t uh, Jimmy Stewart's face looked like it was a terracotta flower pot and things like that, I was really ready to watch it. And uh, I kind of missed the commercials, but I really enjoyed its pace. <laughs> and um, but I and it reminded me, you know, of this kind of eternal return of my failed relationships and things. And then I started thinking more recently in terms of the male gaze and how what you see in someone that you fall in love with often isn't even there and stuff like that. I think people find all that stuff in the movie and it, and it becomes a kind of a really unflattering portrait of the way humans fall in love, especially men. And it's told almost entirely from the male point of view. Mm -hmm. But this exercise of trying to find uh, uh, montage or visual equivalents to the movie in other films and, if, and failing to find the exact shot, you have to find a kind of an emotional equivalent. Or failing that, imagine what Hitchcock would have included had he decided to disclose what he represses and repressed what he discloses. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. you really uh, vivisect the movie. Uh, it stays alive, but you take it apart uh, shot by shot and you begin to feel, and even if you find um, a substitute that has 
a young Chuck Norris just ready to kick someone in the teeth, but you cut just before he kicks someone in the teeth and just you've got just um, a Brissonian close-up of a face that's all peaceful. Mm-hmm. You understand how movies work. It's a vivisection of movies as much as anything, too. Um, you really begin to feel like you understand Vertigo better. And um, I don't know, it really does have the rhythms of being in San Francisco right in its DNA somehow. Just the cab ride um, up that I first took when I uh, first visited the Bay Area in 1989. Yeah. Um, it's there in Jimmy Stewart's driving around, even though it's in front of rear screen projection. I don't know, it's just... It's just there, and the kind of, uh, I don't know, everything's there. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, I haven't spent a lot of time in San Francisco. I've been there maybe half a dozen times in my life, and I've been traveled the world, and I will tell you that it's the most, and I don't know how this is going to sound, this is the most sexual city that I've ever been in. Hmm, yeah, I can't, um, I don't want to go into it because I don't want to make people sick, but I agree. Yeah, there's some... There's uh, like, uh, speaking okay. personally, but, uh, you know, having... Uh, it's also the epicenter for all the sexiest things in, and most serious things uh, that have happened during my lifetime. Uh, AIDS, experimental film, um, yeah. uh, earth, earthquakes, yeah, earth. <laughs> the World Series being interrupted by an earthquake. Um, uh, the Black Panthers are kind of there, hippies, beatniks, all these things that I... Um, that excited me as an adolescent, excited me about the possible changes in the world, saddened me. All that stuff seemed to, all those things just intersected there. And um, along, I guess, along a big fault line. And um, no wonder, no wonder uh, it is the most tumultuous city in North America, too. And in so many ways, just metaphorically speaking, I don't want to hurt any anyone's feelings by being literal about that but um well, 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 it's you know it's obviously new, new new york and chicago and new orleans and st louis and other places have their own sad and glorious histories but yeah no there i i would just say maybe a better way to put it for me because i have been to new york i love new york and there is that electricity that you feel when you're in new york city but i don't know if it's a slightly different uh, perception but i guess yeah. i guess heightened sense of things is maybe a better way of putting it's not the electricity of san francisco but it seems like a city that's where possibility is is more in play whatever that might be and then other places that i've been and i uh, i i agree and and that is there and sorry to interrupt no please just all that's there in uh, vertigo too you know it's just no one is more determined to make something happen there are you know, there's Charles Foster Kane, and there's, you yeah, know, yeah. there's all sorts of alpha males in great noirs and Billy Wilder films that just make things happen until everything blows up in their faces. <laughs> but, um, you know, Jimmy Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo in his own slow and exorable way. You know, I think it was like the second or third time I watched it that I, I'm a bit slow on the take-up, that I realized maybe he isn't such a nice guy <laughs> after all. And, um, you know, maybe his determination to... Um, have things his way is um, is a is a really uncomfortable but completely plausible and spot on portrayal of the way um, us fellas get to get to roll in patriarchy. So 
Um, well, I would, you know, sure. After the movie's over, you get to roll that way again. But um, man, the movie makes you uncomfortable the way it it should. And I don't even know what um, how it makes women feel. Well, when it was made, it would be you'd be hard pressed to pick a time in history when men were more empowered than that late fifties, early into the mid sixties, where that was certainly that would have been so much a in a way a given for especially for some yeah, yeah. Of, that, of that of that era and i think hitchcock if if for me if anything uh he has he was constantly playing with uh the sexual politics the sexual dynamics throughout his career and he did so you know kind of at times disturbingly a lot of times disturbingly but at yeah. the same time he he had it in him to to make it the centerpiece of so many of his his best work, and uh, no, I know, and uh, notorious where yeah. um, I just found myself the hypocrisy of my own sexual jealousy. Um, that well, I didn't find myself in Cary Grant, but I found myself in his jealousy, yeah. his monstrous, destructive jealousy. But um, yeah. Yeah. he was able to overcome it, and I took it upon myself to spend the rest of my adult life, if necessary, to overcome that kind of destructive jealousy, and I've for the most part, succeeded. That's why I was incredibly disappointed. I didn't want to believe, like most people didn't want to believe all those accusations that Hitchcock himself fell prey to all those um, uh, exploitations of his own power yeah. with Tippy. Well, but, it, uh, yeah. you know, what, yeah. you, what you make as an artist and who you are are two different things, alas. And, uh, but he, and, and there's a different, it's a different kind of feminism, certainly when, you are a male making male-aware mo- uh, movies that that lay bare what what you're doing that's monstrous, and then just a movie that's say made by a woman like um, Wanda by Barbara Loden, which is just packed with feminine detail. And even though the protagonist has no agency, it's like just a, a woman's vision all the way through. And got him envious of that movie and wish I'd made it. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I guess there's a feminism by default, which is, I guess, the best thing I could ever hope to achieve. But whatever it is, we found we had a strange opportunity with this film, this movie, I prefer that word for some reason, um, when we couldn't find footage, say, just showing the Kim Novak-ish character um, in her usual zombie state entranced by, you know, by the spirit of Carlotta. We could show her confiding her discomfort with having to play her role in this crime to another woman. Mm. And all of a sudden, you just pass the Bechdel test. You just have two women talking about their discomfort in, in, um, in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, they're not talking about their boyfriends or husbands and just talk two women talking to each other Bechdel test passed and um, and when you're assembling a movie like this and you get a chance to suddenly swivel the point of view around 180 degrees and leave Jimmy Stewart behind and take up Kim Novak's point of view for great stretches it's um, real eye-opener yeah really strange and and we're not really the authors of it 
we are in that we've chosen those shots and put it in there, but the footage already exists from, you know, um, from streets of San Francisco or the lineup or, yeah. you know, bullet or something like that. And, um, you just put it in and next thing you know, you've got kind of a, one of those like New York times, 360 degree views of vertigo and you get to kind of search around in it. And so the, say the dinner scene at Ernie's in Vertigo is, is revisited something like six times, briefly, but six times in the movie, so you can see it from many different angles. Wow. And um, we were even thinking of just calling the movie Weekend at Ernie's uh, <laughs> because it just seemed more, more relevant. Uh, it also sounded like a bad, mad magazine joke, so right. Noah Cowan right. vetoed that, and I don't blame him at all, but yeah. anyway... Well, this uh, this project, it sounds like you. this is something that uh, you've really embraced. Uh, not only did it give you an opportunity to kind of re-examine from all the different angles the, your favorite film, Vertigo, but also uh, really bring into play a creative um, impulse to do what you're just talking about doing in a way yeah. that's not just an exercise in... It's not a travelogue exercise. It's something that is, in fact meant to stand alone as its own work and uh and beyond yeah that. yeah we really wanted it to stand alone so that it wouldn't just play tonight we really do hope that um some other festivals are interested we'll see i do know that it's uh, even though every shot in the movie was executed in the city of san francisco that um we hope it it stands on its own as much as vertigo does and it's and it's way different from vertigo it, and it but it does steal a bit of its thematic thunder yeah. and so we we got to have it both ways it's not vertigo but it um is using you know second hand yeah. but still good um still works second hand thunder from vertigo and then it's and then it's just kind of a, a vivisection public vivisection of how cinema works and stuff it's really watchable i think um oh, and sure since there's footage from almost every decade it's even it's just a kind of a movie nerd's delight but i also just like the way it cuts across decades but they still work the continuity um come off uh it's really a delight for me so well, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for found footage films well i i congratulations on it um on your work as well as uh the johnson boys here um galen, yeah yeah galen and why am I forgetting your collaboration? Galen and Evan. And Evan. Yep. Galen and Evan. And, and they did all the editing. I, I was at, uh, in Cambridge teaching yeah. my um, fear-fueled students at Harvard, but uh, uh, they were in Winnipeg cutting away. And yeah. often I would just wake up in the morning and check my email and just see what they'd cut the night before, and it was really thrilling. Rarely did I have to give any notes. They really got into the, into the, to the spirit of it and just went for it. And then... It was easy to forget that, because we cut to temp music, that our other major collaborator on this project is the Kronos Quartet, Jacob Garchik. And so we started sending him cuts way late, too, but he's really fast and he's really good. And he's just made a really beautiful score. And um, uh, Evan's been sending me email dispatches about how rehearsals are going, and they're currently going beautifully. And um, when the curtain goes up at the Castro, my favorite theater in the world, um, everything should be ready. Should be. I, I just hope. You know what? I, I think these secondhand accounts that I'll get from a few friends that are there tonight because I can't be there. 
are going to be more reliable than my own first-hand experience uh, had I been able to attend because I get so crazy with nerves and self-pity and self-importance that I can't even rely on my own uh, senses at premieres. And so I think um, it's better just to get a second-hand account of, of even of yourself. You know, it's sort of like if you got too drunk at a party the night before and you just say, I wasn't too, too much of an asshole, was I? And people say, yeah, a little bit, but, you know, it's okay. I think everyone will forgive you. And that, that was good enough. You know, I'll take that any time. Yeah. So if I get an account of the film somewhat along those lines from Evan and Galen and my other spies there, I'll be thrilled. Before I let you go, because I'm sure you've got some students that, as you said, you've got to talk them down from the ledge. What's it been like yeah. for you as a teacher, uh, especially at such an august uh, institution like Harvard? What if, how, how are, is that helping you as a filmmaker, or is this? Do you just feel like this is uh, something you've wanted to do for a while? What, what's? Um, I've been teaching off and on. I taught at University of Manitoba in my hometown of Winnipeg for almost twenty years. Okay. But coming here, I um, that was always part time. A couple of night classes a week for one semester a year or something. But this is full-time uh, teaching and you know the, and I'm not showing films and then just chatting about them afterwards we were talking uh, my TA and I just teach filmmaking for three hours a day now I know other people work eight hours a day I'm not saying I work harder than anyone but it's just I work harder at teaching than I used to mm. it's enough that it's really broken up my momentum as a filmmaker mm. um, but I don't regret it um, forcing myself to talk about how to put together a film and I don't want to force all these students to be Guy Madden uh, at one there is uh, more than enough Guy Maddens in the world and um, so you know I try to get them to be the filmmakers that you know the, to find their voices as filmmakers mm -hmm. and it's forced me to uh, watch a wider range of films watch them more closely um, try to communicate with them, try to communicate how to make formally uh, solid films. I, I swear I've learned more, definitely learned more than I've taught my students. I've taught myself more these last two years teaching here, and I'm going to be coming back next year, um, than, than I have in all years uh, of filmmaking. I always told myself, uh, that I was just attending the film school of Guy Madden, of which I'm the, you know, yeah. the only professor and the only student. And that the trial and error was basically um, painfully teaching, <laughs> teaching me how to make films while I was making them. But I've, I wish now that I'd been able to get a job like this a long time ago. I think, um, and you know, just. I, I just think I'd be a better filmmaker now. Well, uh, I, I, had I had I just been able to come here ten years ago. Yeah, I, I read somewhere where, where you you talked about how your first films, you made them, you just made them, and then it was later on that you sort of, uh, I'd say, discovered structure. But I don't I even know if that's the right way to put it. But you were in the article I was reading that you had, um, you know, it was not you were not a classic structural filmmaker but you may no, and you... i would have been happy to be one because i have enough weirdo crap going on in my oh. films that if i would just had a working knowledge of how of protagonists antagonists and sequences and, and three-act structure <laughs> just the full robert 
McKee buffet, yeah. uh, I would have been fine, and I could have broken the rules uh, knowingly or adhered to them. But um, I finally read my first How to Write a Screenplay books last summer, and what a revelation. Yeah. Who'd have thunk it? Protagonists. Well, yeah, um, I, I'm telling you. So uh, I'm I'm happy yeah. to have them, but uh, I don't think I think I still would have made films on the same subjects because they obsessed me at the time. I cured myself of the obsession in every case just by making the films. It's it's a long enough process, and you get sick of your obsessions and sick of yourself while making them. And so I I've one by one cured myself of almost all obsessions. And maybe the timing right now is perfect for teaching for a few years at Harvard because I'm not sure I have any obsessions right now anyway. Yeah. But I am excited about the possibility of film. I like the lyric essay in cinema. I like the work of Miguel Gomez. And, and I'm now gobbling up everything way too late, but everything by Chris Marker and um, all those great yeah. cine essayists. And uh, there's just so much potential in cinema now, more than ever before when you combine Netflix series and streaming stuff and documentaries and pseudo documentaries and right. docu fiction and it, um, in that regard guy there's a the film res- preservationist out of UCLA mm-hmm. Ross, Ross Lippman who just did the film not film the Beckett Keaton collaboration I know for right. a, I know for a fact that Ross is a big Chris Marker um uh, enthusiast and has a lot of his stuff so if that's something you choose if you feel like you want to pursue that, I know that Ross is doing a lot with that. Um, has yeah, that's on my. Um, that's next up for me to watch. Um, well, he's the, a good uh, film, source. not film, by the way. It's um, yeah. a Bay Area friend of mine has been recommending that one most vociferously. So yeah. that one is uh, next up in my queue. Well, I uh, listen. I, you've been very generous with your time, uh, Guy Madden. You're one of my favorite filmmakers, and I love your work. I love the. I love the rawness of it. I love the. I love what you do. I. I just think that you are. You have a distinct voice, and it's yours. And whether or not you got to the structure of film later on, I. I does not in any way diminish the. Uh, the impact of your films for me personally. So, I just want to say thank you. This is a real honor for me to be able to talk to you about this. So. Oh, that's great, and uh, thanks so much. Very sweet of you. And we have been honored to be speaking with the co-director of that film, and that is Guy Madden. Guy, thank you so much. A million thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.